Hello, welcome to Huddle Daily. I'm your host, JC Hyatt, and today I'm joined by Adam Colton from the Quantum Resistant Ledger. Adam, you want to say hey? Hi, everyone. Uh, and thanks for having me. Awesome. Glad, glad to have you. Um, so, uh, Adam, you want to go a little bit more into like who you are and, and your background, um, how you got into this, uh, this space and um, just kind of like why you're here? Yeah. Um, so my name is Adam Colton. I'm the lead business strategist for the Quantum Resistant Ledger. Um, and I started in the cryptocurrency space. I would imagine the way many people start in the cryptocurrency space, which was as a uh, speculative trader. Um, you know, I had been told by friends in 2014, in 2015, and in 2016, you got to check out this crazy magic internet money, man. It's going to like change the world. And um, I like to say that it was sort of the right message from the wrong messenger. Um, you know, obviously, many elements of those statements are true, but the way it was de uh, delivered left me a bit skeptical. However, uh, at the end of 2016, I was going through a bit of a career change myself. I wanted to see what was out there, and I started researching the technology. Um, I didn't end up buying in until early 2017, um, and then obviously saw what happened with the market in 2017, as everyone else did. Um, I became more and more involved. Uh, I actually, my, my initial interaction with the quantum resistant ledger or QRL as we call it, um, was as a trader, not as an employee. And, um, eventually they ended up having an opening and I, uh, sort of put my hat into the ring and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, and one of the things I think that has served me well in my current position is that I don't have a technical background myself. I'm not a developer. I'm not an engineer. Um, my degrees are in the social sciences. And so I think I have a facility in explaining some of these concepts um, in ways that are understandable uh, because I had to sort of learn it very um, piecemeal moving forward. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, that, that you'll fit right in uh, here on Huddle Daily. Um, cool. So, so let's dive in a little bit. Uh, I know, you know, quantum resistant ledger, which is, uh, for some reason for me, it's a mouthful to say, so I'm going to say QRL. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's all, you know, the name quantum resistant kind of begs some questions for those of us who may not be familiar with quantum computing. Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit and kind of start there of like, what is, quantum computing like this sounds like something out of some sci-fi movie um i myself being a developer don't even understand it uh all i know is it's like from what i've gathered it's a threat to um uh blockchain technology but that's about the the depth of knowledge that i have on it so um so i'd love to hear from you especially uh being a you know, non-technical person I'd, I'd love to hear your explanation of that yeah um so the first thing uh, I always tell people with quantum computers is that, um, yes, it's also uses the word computer and it's a type of computer in the sense that it's a machine that solves problems, but really on a very fundamental level, they're different from the computers we're used to. So the computers we're used to operate on binary, which means that, um, a given bit can either be a one or a zero and everything sort of scales up from there. Um, this is the thing that gives us, you know, the idea of Moore's law, the idea that you take the same basic components and you make them smaller and faster, and then they fit in the same basic space, but it produces more. Um, all that has to be sort of put to the side when we start talking about quantum computers, because the very atomic unit is different. Instead of a bit, they use what's called a qubit. Um, and aside from the cute name difference, the main functional difference is that a bit can be a one or a zero and a qubit, 
and this is the part where it starts sounding a little silly sometimes, is that a qubit can be what's called superimposed or in a superposition, um, which means it can be it can have it can be both one and zero at the same time, which is obviously slightly different than one or zero. And what that means functionally is that a traditional computer scales in a linear fashion, which means that it goes from you know, the computing power of four qubits is twice the computing power of two qubits. Um, with quantum computers, it's exponential, which means that the computing power of three qubits is twice the computing power of two qubits. And the computing power of 10 qubits is twice the computing power of nine. Every single qubit you add to the system doubles the computational power of that system. Um, and so this creates a growth curve that's completely distinct from the normal computing growth curve. Um, and it has implications in terms of both the technology, how quickly it will progress, as well as what it will be able to do. So right now, quantum computers are at basically the same stage that regular computers were at in the 1960s. They take up an entire room. It takes a whole team of people to build and maintain them. They often break and they're only useful for very specific processes. Um, however, many of the companies and governments that are pursuing this technology are some of the um, most resource rich in the entire world. You have your Google, your IBM, yeah, there's a European company called Rigetti, as well as obviously the United States, Russia, and China, uh, Chinese governments all um, pursuing this technology in various ways and for various reasons. So it's a technology that requires massive resources, but is being given massive resources. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of like what a quantum computer is. Now, where it intersects with um, technology in general and crypto in particular is around what's called factorization. So modern cryptography, any cryptography, you can go back a thousand years, same, same basic um, principle, is that cryptography is based on an assumption. So the assumption when you build a 10-foot high fence is that people won't come along with a 10-foot high ladder. The assumption when you build a thick stone wall is that there's nothing that can explode that stone wall. Mm -hmm. The assumption with modern cryptography is that extremely large numbers cannot be factored in actionable periods of time on a traditional computer. What that means is that, yes, you could factor this number, and yes, you could derive my private key but it would take literally thousands upon thousands of years to do so, by which point obviously we will all be gone and finding out somebody's private key won't matter. Um, so that's the functional safety of current cryptography. Now quantum computers come along and they are not going to replace the computer in your home. They're not gonna replace the computer in your phone. But what they are gonna do is be very, very good at very specific things. And one of those things is factoring extremely large numbers because the beauty of mathematics is that it can outpace technology. There have been theorems and algorithms that have been made that cannot be run on current computers and will have to be run on a quantum computer, even though they were written many times in the 1980s and the 1990s, long before quantum computers existed. Um, one of those is known as Shor's algorithm, developed by a mathematician by the name of Peter Dorr. And all it is is an algorithm for factorizing extremely large numbers in effective periods of time. That's its sole sort of utility. Traditional computers can't run it. Quantum computers cannot run it yet. But the question has shifted over the past five years from an if to a when. 
like if quantum computers will be functional to when will quantum computers be functional. And that has massive security implications because when something could be a threat, the amount you need to prepare for it is whatever. When something is definitely going to be a threat, and the question is simply when will it you know, rear its ugly head, um, the, the impetus on the security implications becomes quite a bit different. What are three ways that quantum computing can be a threat to, to uh, you or I personally, to a company, to a country, to the world? Like, what are three ways that you can, uh, three examples you might be able to give? Um, yeah, so I can give three examples, though they won't necessarily all directly interact with crypto, uh, cryptocurrency. Sure. So one yeah. main example is the one I'm giving you, which is that uh, quantum computers are going to upset much of the security infrastructure. Now, this same mm-hmm. basic security infrastructure is used outside of cryptocurrency as well. That's how it got used inside cryptocurrency. You know, most of the internet uses a basic, it's called PKI or public key infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's certainly one of the main ways. Another way is a little bit more indirect and doesn't really involve cryptocurrency at all, but in the world at large, um, quantum entanglement um, allows for a type of communication that's very expensive, but also hyper secure. And um, in obviously any sort of geopolitics or military situation, secure communications and untraceable, untappable communications can greatly shift the balance of power and shift uh, priorities. So that's definitely going to have implications, though that's going to be a little bit further down the line and won't necessarily directly touch cryptocurrency. Um, and then finally, and this one is a bit more up for debate, um, you know, quantum computers are going to have abilities that we cannot yet um, foresee. The same way traditional computers are able to do things today that nobody was able to foresee in 1965. Mm-hmm. Um, but people speculate. They speculated then, they speculate now. And one of the things people speculate is that quantum computers may be able to process um, basically data sets in ways that traditional computers are not because they're able to look at things from more than just two sides. Um, now, this is highly theoretical and also does not have, to my knowledge, any direct implications on cryptocurrency, but it is sort of a fun thought experiment. Um, quantum computers are going to allow us to do things that we thought was not possible computationally before, as well as allow us to sort of um, attempt things since we have this entirely new paradigm within which to do so. Yeah, that that does sound really abstract for me. Yeah, it's pretty abstract for me too. I'll admit um, some of that makes more sense just in the sense that like it has been told to me by way smarter people and some of it makes more sense in in an actionable way. It's kind of like, I don't know, when I first, you know, when I first learned in junior high or high school, how like radio worked kind of blew my mind sort of was like, what do you mean? These waves are sort of all around us, but we don't interact with them, but they can carry these messages with complete accuracy across massive distances. Kind of cooked my noodle a little bit. Um, and some of this quantum computing stuff is, is somewhat similar. But um, mainly, the main takeaway for anybody that's not particularly interested in the nitty-gritty details is that quantum computers are going to require, as any major advancement in technology has always required, uh, a, new, a new front in the ongoing war between cryptographers and decoders. Um, this has been going on in various civilizations within our species for thousands of years. We want to take a more recent example you know, like that, uh, 
like that Benedict Cumberbatch movie the other year was it called like the Imitation Game or something, talking about World War II and and the cipher and trying to decode sort of the Nazis' um, mm-hmm. code and how instrumental that was to the war. Whenever technology advances, cryptography becomes more complicated and the penetrative technologies become more advanced in an attempt to, to compromise that cryptography. And while this is a different, um, you know, obviously a unique technological innovation, it, in the end, it, it very much fits into this narrative that's been going on for generations and generations. Mm-hmm. So, so starting to hone in on, on crypto, um, I kind of have two questions. One, uh, how is this a threat to like, obviously QRL exists, so there must have been a known threat to cryptocurrency and, and uh, blockchain technology as we have it today um, from quantum computing. So like, can you explain a little bit about like how that works? And I'm, I'm, I mean, I know on a, on a basic level, it's like, well, blockchain is secured by math. And so if the math is not hard for a quantum computer, then, you know, that's, that's it game over. That's, that's the, about what I understand about it, but I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And that's, there, there's elements of truth in there. Um, so basically the main type of cryptography used in um, blockchains today, excuse me, um, is known as ECDSA or elliptic curve distributed signature algorithm cryptography. This is used by Bitcoin. This is used by Ethereum. This is used by every fork of those two chains, as well as most other independent chains. It is the overwhelming majority, most common type of cryptography used to secure people's signature schemes. Um, And its assumption is that factorization of very large numbers is functionally impossible by computers. So what that means is that there is a public key and a private key, and there is a mathematical relationship between two of them that can be reverse engineered, but it requires computational elements that don't exist in normal computers and will, um, well, they do exist in quantum computers. They're just not yet powerful enough to be applied to blockchain technology. But again, that's a question of when, not if. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the, the, in a nutshell, that's the threat. The thing that secures most blockchains and prevents people from stealing people's private keys is something whose days are numbered. Um, so the person that founded the QRL, uh, Peter, uh, Waterland, um, in, in 2016, he, you know, this is, this is not exactly complete news, but in 2016, there was sort of the final, um, codification of, um, some of the quantum resistant cryptography that's going to help, you know, secure all these systems from quantum computer computing moving forward. So we've known about this threat in the crypto world for a while before 2016, I guess. Um, I mean, in crypto time, yes. In the sense that one year in crypto is a long time, yes. Mm -hmm. But certainly in 2008, 2009, 2010, even to 2011 and 12, the the question of quantum computing was still very much a question of, of, is this even possible? Okay. So, you know, nobody that was starting Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything like that was like, well, I could use EC- ECDSA or I could use something that's, you know, more secure and I'll just choose to use ECDSA. No, at the time, it was generally thought that ECDSA was basically unbreakable, uncrackable. So, of course, that's what you'd use if you're starting a new technology. Um, 
it is just sort of the way of the world. Something is thought to be impossible until somebody figures out a way to make it possible. Um, and the development of quantum computing has been such that it's, it's because it's nonlinear, it's very stop and go. So, you know, even as recently as five years ago, there was a lot more debate about, is this possible than now? Um, and on the flip side, uh, certain elements um, that allow for quantum resistant cryptography were, you know, ratified and codified and given the stamp of approval by academia um, more recently. And so with a more clear and present danger on the one hand, as well as a sort of silver lining from, you know, the academic world of ways we could mathematically secure against this in, in new, new and incoming threat. Um, yeah. So Peter put all that together in the white paper that he wrote in November of 2016. And then, um, you know, fundraising development and all that started in earnest in 2017. And then we launched our network um, actually just a bit over a month ago on the 22nd of June, uh, 2018. So in many ways, it's been like in any other industry, going from concept to hiring people, to developing, to launching a product in that short amount of time, really from November 2016 to June of 2018, would seem like a breakneck pace. In crypto, obviously, the world has changed twice over <laughs> in that period of time. I mean, from no in November of 2018, 16, I don't think very many people could have seen November of 2017 coming. Mm -hmm. um, certainly in the beginning of November 2017, people, well, many people, unfortunately, did not seem to see January of 2018 coming in terms of what the market did. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's this very interesting bubble where I like to call it, you know, extreme time dilation. Cryptocurrency makes a, a day feel like a week, a week feel like a month, and a month feel like a year. Um, and so while it, it, in many ways it's been, it's been very rapid compared to the industry we're in, you know, everything seems like it takes too long. Um, so this is something where, why are we trying to address, like quantum resistant ledger sort of begs the question, why are we addressing a problem that has not yet fully matured yet? Um, and one of the reasons we're doing that is because of a sort of unfortunate outgrowth of decentralized technology. So to give a concrete example, I use Gmail for my personal email, um, Google's email service. That's a centralized service. That's a server-based service. It's a service with a God administrator and all the things that we sort of askew in our decentralized organizations. Um, however, if tomorrow Google decided to completely change their security infrastructure on the back end, they wouldn't need my participation and they wouldn't need my consent. They could just change all that. And then when I logged in, it would look the same, but it would be completely different. In a mm -hmm. decentralized system, I mean, I have a Bitcoin wallet. Nobody, well, I hope nobody knows my private key but me. So if Bitcoin wants to change something that's fundamental to the, you know, login credentials, if you will, or the signature scheme of the wallet, you know, they're going to need my active consent and participation in migrating to this new wallet. Mm -hmm. um, when you multiply that by the millions of people that use some of these networks, not to mention all the dead wallets and all the lost private keys, it very, very quickly becomes orders of magnitude more difficult and complicated to achieve these um, security migrations. I mean, I'll be honest, I do not envy some of the legacy blockchains and figuring out how they're going to eventually tackle this. However, you know, at QRL, us being a sort of second generation blockchain, if you want to sort of 
talk about it like that. Um, we had the benefit, like anyone does in technology, of looking at what has worked and what has been perhaps less than entirely useful in some of our predecessors and trying to take those lessons and do it right the first time. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the, the, where the rubber meets the road in terms of uh, cryptocurrency and quantum computing. It's something that, because it takes a lot longer and is a lot more difficult to um, deal with mm -hmm. on a technological level, we really need to, as, a, as an industry, um, start addressing this earlier than we think might necessarily um, be prudent. Because, I mean, yes, we, we're proud of the fact that we're leading the pack and we're sort of innovators in this space in terms of quantum resistance at QRL. Um, heck, that's why we put it in our name. Um, but in the end, we don't want to be the only quantum resistant project and have some, you know, black swan event come in and ruin the industry. We don't want to end up being kings of a pile of ash. We mm -hmm. want to help bring this new security standard to this industry as a whole. Now, I try to be optimistic, but, you know, probably some projects won't adapt quickly enough and might get caught out. But, you know, we would like to see a situation where quantum resistance becomes more and more common in the industry because eventually it's going to be become necessary. Um, eventually this is going to be, if you're making a, a blockchain from scratch, you're just going to automatically use quantum resistant cryptography because quantum computers are a factor of our lives. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess, so you guys um, yourself, you do have some sort of coin yourself, right? But, um, or, or you can answer that first and then I'll ask the other question. Yeah. So we, um, we have an ERC-20 that uh, came out last year to give our um, initial, um, you know, backers and stuff a little bit of interim liquidity. Mm -hmm. um, however, once we launched our main network, obviously, we have been migrating those ERC-20s that live on Ethereum's network over to an exchange for um, our mainnet Quanta token. Uh, so, yes, we have our own cryptocurrency. Okay. Now, are you also trying to... Um, like, are you trying to also set up an infrastructure where, you know, assuming they could agree on it, uh, even Bitcoin could use your ledger or is this something like where the, like, that's not even a thing. I mean, I'm looking, I'm, I'm also thinking about, um, what's that project? Um, there's one of the big ones that's working on kind of interconnecting all the blockchains. Yeah. Arc, so. Quite possibly, though I'll admit I'm not personally terribly familiar with ARC. Um, yeah. But is that so, something that y'all are thinking about, or is this like, you know, you're really just focused on your own currency in, in terms of like uh, inter interoperability with other blockchains? All right. So interoperability is definitely something that any blockchain today needs to be considering. However, since we are a security based product, Anything to deal with interoperability or direct channels between our blockchain and another blockchain is something we need to approach with a, a high degree of sort of caution and skepticism, unfortunately, because if we were to connect to a chain that does not have the same security standards as ours, we would risk potentially building a backdoor into our own blockchain. Okay. However, we do have token functionality on the blockchain. So if somebody was, you know, had a coin and they were unsure of their quantum um, resistant capabilities, or maybe they were in the middle of a security upgrade and wanted to ensure that the value of their network, um, you know, had, had some type of outside check. 
you can spin up a token on, on the QRL blockchain that lives on our blockchain. And so obviously has all the security features that we do um, and just make a mirror. So like if I have a coin that has a hundred million coins and has whatever it's called Adam coin or whatever, um, I could go on QRL, make Adam coin token, make a hundred million of those. And, you know, assuming I have a snapshot of my blockchain when I know it's secure, um, you know, if worst came to very worst, you could attempt to try to replicate the distribution on our network. Now, obviously, that would be a, a pretty difficult process. Um, and one of the things that would greatly enable that being possible would be full smart contract functionality. Mm -hmm. And um, I say that as a segue into one of the first things we are looking to um, make possible now that we've launched and we're sort of looking at our uh, secondary feature set is smart contracts. Um, obviously, again, with a security-based product, um, we need to make sure that we have fairly tight parameters on what sort of logic can and cannot be expressed in those smart contracts. But, you know, as anybody that's ever used Ethereum or ever interacted with an ERC-20 can tell you, when you combine the functionality of a token with a smart contract that can run that token, you're able to do a lot of very dynamic and inventive things. Um, and ultimately, we want to sort of take that basic functionality that's already been sort of demonstrated by Ethereum in terms of tokens and, and smart contracts, add to it the layer of security that we inherently bring um, and sort of provide that as kind of a, uh, uh, a feature set um, for people to, to use because, you know, we're, we're building a platform. And so, um, you know, to that end, our code base has always been open source. You can go check out our GitHub right now. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of similar to like the BIP uh, system that Bitcoin has to, you know, suggest um, ideas to it. We have a QIP system um, where people can suggest uh, alterations or directions for the blockchain, a uh, small or large level. Um, you know, we are trying to find that sort of uh, three little bears, perfect middle ground of security and functionality and, um, you know, certain elements even of interoperability. But ultimately when push comes to shove, if we're forced to choose between speed and security or between interoperability and security, we're always going to choose security. Um, sure. Just because that's kind of focus is, I think, something that is occasionally lacking in this industry. And there are a lot of coins that I think have the best of intentions, but it seems like they kind of want to do like a Swiss Army coin where they mm -hmm. like do every single thing possible with this technology under one umbrella. And while we all love our Swiss Army knives, um, I think it's probably a safe assumption to make that I don't cut my steak with a Swiss army knife. <laughs> I cut my steak with a steak knife. I use a tool that's very specifically designed to do one or a couple things. And I use it for those one or a couple things. Um, QRL is not a Swiss army knife. QRL is a steak knife. Um, you know, it can, it can do the things it can do and it does them very well. And we are going to try to maintain that focus and that utility moving forward so that, um, you know, our users know what they're signing up for. Mm -hmm. They're not signing up for a security coin that all of a sudden is trying to, I don't know, also be the absolute fastest, um, most interoperable coin possible, which just has baked in sort of security um, concessions to it. Same way if you're absolutely secure, 
you're going to have to bake in certain speed concessions because you're going to want things like more confirmations and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that, you know, that as blockchain continues to mature, as the cryptocurrency market continues to mature in general, you're going to see a lot more specialization. And I like to think that we're um, maybe just a little bit ahead of the curve in that sense. Yeah, cool. Are there um, uh, any other uh, larger projects out there who are also like working on um, being quantum resistant or uh, so that you in, particularly respect? In terms of the top five cryptocurrencies or top 10, um, mm -hmm. I mean, I have always, so the first cryptocurrency I ever bought in my life was Ethereum. Mm -hmm. um, I did that because when I was first looking into them, like most people, I was like, well, I don't want to go into a project that's too small. Give me one of like the bigger ones and I'll sort of feel more comfortable with that. And the mixture that Ethereum has between its sort of decentralized structure as well as having the Ethereum Foundation act as sort of a guiding hand, mm -hmm. I thought was a really interesting way of trying to straddle that line between you want things to be, you know, a dictatorship is much more efficient than a democracy, but that doesn't make it better. But at the same time, you need to be able to have a certain amount of direction. And so I think I always thought uh, Ethereum made a very good faith effort um, to try to straddle that line. And indeed, the first time I ever heard of anything quantum resistant uh, in the space was looking at Ethereum's roadmap, which, you know, quantum resistance is on. I think, I haven't checked the roadmap recently. I think it's not even like the next thing or the next next thing. I think it's a little bit far down the road. But, you know, it is it is a value to people like QRL in this space that are trying to just even get people to know the phrase quantum resistant more mm -hmm. um, commonly and understand what that means to have some like an Ethereum have on their roadmap, like this is a feature we want uh, to have integrated eventually. Now, we at QRL might disagree with the good folks over at Ethereum on the timing of that and when exactly those changes need to be made. But the fact that there is um, agreement to a certain degree in that it is a useful feature moving forward at some point is still a, a good place to be, I think. Um, cool. Um, cool. So are, are there any other kind of key aspects of QRL that you would like, um, you know, listeners to know? Yeah. Um, so one of the, one of the other things we launched with, um, somewhat similar to the fact that we have token functionality, but we don't yet have smart contracts. We have, um, the backbone of sort of a, uh, a data messaging layer that, that is still being fleshed out and will continue to be sort of improved upon and articulated upon in the coming months. Um, but it's, it's, we call it the ephemeral data messaging layer, and it's what is going to be basically the backbone upon which if someone wants to make a secure communications um, app or anything to do with, you know, sending sort of discrete data packets between two users on the network. Mm -hmm. um, I personally think that that is going to be the thing that is probably going to be the first sort of port of call for any developers that want to build on our blockchain. Um, just because, you know, some of the, some of its immediate applications like just a hyper secure, you know, version of like a messenger app, um, yeah. you know, I think would fit very much into the ecosystem of apps that are already out there just with mm -hmm. an added level of security. And then of course, as it matures, I honestly, I cannot wait to see what some of the inventive ideas that might come out of that are just because when you give somebody a basic infrastructure to basically just like send data from point A to point B or A to B to C, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a very, 
broad foundation upon which so many different things can be iterated upon. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, not having a technical background myself, I, I really just am always impressed by the inventive and sort of manifested cleverness of a lot of developers in this space in the way that they are able to take something or a few things and put it all together and make it functional um, in ways that people oftentimes didn't really realize they had an appetite for until they're offered it. Mm -hmm. People didn't know they wanted Facebook until they had Facebook. And then all of a sudden it was, oh, this, this fills all these needs that we all sort of had, but didn't really articulate in a specific way. Um, so uh, you said that's not launched yet, right? Yeah. So it's in a sort of baby phase, I guess. Okay. You know, it, it, it is a newborn moving closely to a toddler. And then we hope to see it running off on its stubby little legs any day now. But, cool. um, so, so is a plan to have some sort of API for that? Um, oh, yeah. I'm going to um, get a little in the weeds, but I am just curious for myself, like if I wanted to try to just hack something on it for fun, um, if, yeah. if you know, so, like some sort of API I can interact with. Yeah, we, we launched our API site last week. Um, okay. And as more features get added, we will um, add them to the API uh, commensurately. We also... What is that uh, website? Um there's a link off of our main site. I'm trying to remember what okay. the specific yeah, URL. Just... I think it's api.qrl.org, but let me double check. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I'm so used to doing everything through our main site. Um, oh, that's fine. Um, yeah, api.thequrl.org. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, but in addition to our um, API site, we also have sort of a very fleshed out documentation site, which can be used in conjunction with it. Because we realized when we were talking about putting our API together that, well, yeah, we can make an API you need to in order for people to build on you. But if we just sort of throw it out there, then that's a barrier to entry. It's telling any developer, hey, here's the tools, you figure them out. Um, and that's not really, that's sort of being, that's kind of, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be crass, but that's kind of, you know, paying lip service to being open source, but not actually really putting your money where your mouth is. Um, and so we have built out this documentation site, which is also accessible from our main site um, to make sure that this API, you know, is functional. And then on top of that, there's a lot of documentation that can walk people through how to utilize its functionality as well as the functionality of our chain in general. And that was our way of trying to demonstrate that, no, no, we really do want people to build on our chain. And, and the open source thing is not a buzzword. It's not a tagline. It's, mm -hmm. it's something that's a real commitment, um, really from the top down uh, within our project. Um, the two people that founded our project um, both come from sort of the open source development community and, and you know, have been long, um, long-standing fans of Bitcoin and, and a lot of the earliest cryptocurrencies. So there was never a question as our project was developing that we would do everything we could reasonably do in our power to enable open source development to happen on our network. Yeah, I'm looking at the doc site now, actually. Um, this is cool. You all even have docs on just like how to migrate. Yeah, um, you know, the the beautiful thing about actually committing real resources to stuff like that is that, you know, if somebody's spending all day looking at documentation, reviewing it, then they're able to um, create very specific, going back to what I was saying earlier about specialization, mm -hmm. you know, that really is reflected throughout our whole ecosystem that 
yes, we could have a documentation site that has your general how-to doc, but again, we want to make it as easy as possible for people to, to build on our chain. You know, we didn't create a brand new um, programming languages uh, like some like some networks have. Um, we used existing programming languages because, well, yeah. our developers felt that they were functional enough on the one hand, and then on another side, you know, from sort of my perspective, it's a great way to lower the barrier of entry for saying, hey, these common programming languages that you already know, right. they work in our ecosystem. Yeah, your, uh, your, your docs here are, um, the, all the examples are in JavaScript, so you're speaking my language. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I will admit, I don't know any JavaScript, but from what I understand, JavaScript is a fairly commonly understood Oh, it's taking language. over the world, so you're, it's a good call. <laughs> yeah, no, our developers, our developers are very, um, very good at their jobs, but they're also um, savvy, I guess is the best way I could put it, in terms yeah. of understanding what would, if they were a developer just sort of browsing the net looking to write on a blockchain, what would be appealing to them? Um, yeah. And so they've sort of, I guess, reverse engineered that thing to make our API and documentation site, um, in, in theory, I guess, appealing to a developer. Because uh, mm -hmm. obviously those are the people that are going to be um, overwhelmingly the people that interact with it. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to take a closer look at this stuff. Um, so uh, just kind of, I guess, wrapping up a little bit, like, are there, um, besides your website, are there any, any other resources where... Uh, listeners can learn more about you and um, you know how they can get involved. Yeah, so our website's a very good place to land on, just because it has then links to everything I'm about to say. Um, so we have our website. We have a subreddit on on Reddit where we we sort of post um, occasional updates. That's mm -hmm. kind of not the uh, in real time conversation hub. That's sort of more of a message board kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Our real time um, sort of social hub is Discord. We use the Discord app. Um, we have a cool. server on there, and there's a link to that from our website. Um, that is where, you know, myself and the other uh, community and marketing managers, as well as, you know, occasional developers, and even uh, once in a while our founders will hop in to sort of directly interact with the community. We have um, app suggestion channels. We have a number of dedicated sort of mining support, development support, uh, channels and you know it's really meant to be sort of the hub of interaction um, for people that want to learn more about us or alternatively uh, discuss sort of development ideas. Cool, awesome. Well, um, anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up here? No, I think we about covered everything. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. This is uh, this is great for me. I'm hoping my uh, my listeners also benefit from this. I'm. Um, Quantum computing is still a little bit of a ambiguous topic for me, but um, I think I'm getting a little closer to understanding it now after this conversation, or at least understanding the, the theory. One metaphor I like to use is that fluid dynamics are very complicated and many people don't understand them, but everybody wants to stay dry. And really, ultimately, what we're providing is is not the quantum computer itself, but the thing to protect you from it. So even if you don't necessarily yeah. understand quantum computing, I think most people can see the utility in uh, staying dry from them. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Adam, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And um, hopefully we can maybe circle back around in three, four months and just kind of see where you guys are. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. 